0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Heather Long, an economics correspondent formerly and now a columnist and editorial writer at The Post. Today we're talking about the global economy, how things are going with the supply chain and the global labor shortage and other issues in the world. My guest is a very special person, a CEO that's Ravathi Advithi, the CEO of Flex, one of the world's largest manufacturing
1: services companies.
0: Welcome to PostLive, Advithi.
1: Thank you for having me, Heather.
0: So let's start with what is Flex? Your company has often been called one of the biggest companies in the world that a lot of people haven't heard of. You're not a household name like Coke or Apple. But you manufacture, or you help manufacture, a lot of products that many of us know and probably have in our homes or in our businesses. Can you give us an overview absolutely.
1: of Flex? Yes, absolutely, Heather. You know we're we're a name behind many brands, and uh, like we said in the introduction, you know 160,000 employees, 100 plus manufacturing location across the world. We are around a 25 billion dollar company, and we make everything from um, you know, networking, switching, uh, coffee machines, to medical devices, to very complex autonomous car parts. So you probably think of something that you have around you in your office or at your home, um, and we probably make it. So one of the world's largest manufacturing companies, um, and we say we make many little things in high scale, high volume, and many very large, complex things uh, that we make across the world.
0: Fascinating. One of the things that you make, I believe, is ventilators, and you were one of the leading producers of ventilators uh, during this COVID crisis. Can you give us an update on the global supply of ventilators? I know you were just churning out so many in 2020, but how are things looking in 2021? Do most countries have what they need now?
1: On ventilators, absolutely. Last year, when we first jumped into it, actually we made many many medical devices, uh, things like oxygen concentrators and things like that, but we weren't making ventilators. So when we jumped into it during the pandemic, it was because customers came to us and said, hey, nobody can scale up as quickly as you, so can we just start producing ventilators in more locations across the world? And um, you know, at that point, I think the world's production of ventilators was around like 50,000 annually. And Flex scaled up, you know, across many factories. Like many companies across the world did the same. And I would say we have enough production and capacity across the world, thankfully, um, you know, for ventilators. And it's not as much as a requirement as it was when the pandemic first started. But medical devices in general. Many medical equipment to support the continued kind of pandemic rise is still a significant part of what we are focused on right now.
0: So one of the key challenges, as you know well, of being a CEO right now is just keeping people safe. You've obviously got 160,000 employees in countries around the world. Uh, I'm wondering, how do you feel? Like, do you, are you requiring that your employees get
1: vaccinated? Heather, it, you know, keeping our employees safe is the most important thing. I always tell people that when everyone had has the luxury of kind of saying, oh, I'm working from home, right, I'm dialing in for the call. And, you know, at the height of the pandemic, we still had to focus on how do we bring employees into work so we all can order the stuff we're ordering on and it shows up in our doorstep a lot of our 160,000 employees don't have that luxury because we have to show up to make the things that everybody is using so health and safety practices have been at the core of everything we do right we've we've figured that out on day one across every uh location that we have in the world you know everything from social distancing how do you bring people in from their communities into work how do you do shift change How do you mask? All of that has been such a significant part of what we do, and we're learning every day with every new variant. We learn, we correct, we get better at what we're doing. And um, I would say in terms of vaccination rates, we have a very significant vaccination rate across the company in many parts of the world and in many countries where we have enabled our employees to you know in our factories to bring in vaccinations so they can and their communities can get vaccinated so you know i would say from a mandating standpoint we haven't done that but we have a very high vaccination rate across many of our factories and we're very pleased with kind of how our employees are reacting to it feel very comfortable with the health and safety and how we're addressing it across all our locations
0: yeah and I guess as Omicron uh, obviously scales up and appears to be a bigger problem around the world, uh, are there other changes that you're making now that, that um, like, I, you know, many companies are requiring masks again, or my company just announced a delay of a return to office? As you said, you can't do that, and your factories have to still produce. What are you thinking right now as Omicron grows?
1: Heather we never changed our mask mandates across all our factories across any part of the world so whether you're in kind of Ukraine or Brazil or India or China or the US we just kept with our mask mandates throughout you know we actually started producing masks for our employees when the pandemic first started and we didn't feel comfortable that we were ready for kind of taking off masks in any of our factories so we have been just using that as a significant part of our health and safety practice. And so with Omicron, nothing changes for us that way. Right. So we're still doing social distancing. We're still kind of planning our shifts out in a safe way. So we never relaxed uh, that side of how we were working. And so for us, it, there's nothing to change other than, you know, continuing to just monitor and make sure we have strong contact tracing and things like that. So. Uh, But so far, I would say so good with the the Omicron variant, too. We're not seeing a huge rise in cases yet, um, but we're monitoring and tracking that very closely. And our mask mandate helps. Mm. Um,
0: So I want to ask you as well about the supply chain. Flex is heavily involved in helping companies think through the supply chain and Uh, Obviously, it feels like we're all experts in the supply chain now trying to understand how goods flow around the world and where these log jams are. I'm curious to get your take. Is it looking any better as we head into 2022?
1: Heather, isn't it funny how everybody knows what supply chain is today? I tell people that you know, every time I'd explain to my family, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a supply chain leader, many years ago, everybody say, what is that, you know, who is that, what do you do? And now it feels like every kid in the street knows what supply chain is. So maybe that's one good thing that comes out of this crisis is everyone at least has a healthy respect for, you know, all the hundreds of professionals who work in this space. So first thing I would say is that you know, our view is that this is a very, very difficult uh, place to be in terms of the supply chain crisis itself. Um, It's a tough slog every day, whether it's looking for containers or whether it's looking for enough production parts, whether it is starting and stopping our factories because we don't have enough product to bring in and manufacture. So it is still a very, very difficult place to be. Uh, because there is so many parts of the supply chain that is still at risk. But, you know, we in our company, we have around 10,000 people who actually only track and manage our supply chain, everything from planning to bringing materials to tracking logistics. And so we're well positioned at least to deal with this for our customers, whether it is finding parts or finding an alternate source or requalifying a part or finding a new container. We just have thousands of people who are just doing that every single day but our view of the supply chain crisis is that it's been a long time in the making and it's not just something we woke up and happened yesterday right think about how lengthy supply chains have been getting with the whole globalization phenomena right it is something that has built up over a long period of time Think about the build up of electronics and semiconductors in everything we do. That has been going on for a long period of time. So all of those has been building up. And the minute there was a crisis, then it just got accelerated in a very significant way. And that's kind of where we are today. And like every supply chain crisis that has happened over my last three decades of working in this, it takes time for it to correct, right? Because we have what is called the bullwhip effect. It takes time to build up enough product. It takes enough time to clean up the, you know, make sure the channel has enough product. All that takes time. The good news is demand is still very, very strong, which is great. But the other side to it is it means it'll take a while for the supply chain crisis to, to clear up. So we think, you know, we'll have to continue to work this over the next kind of 12 to 18 months
0: yes your company has some great indices and metrics that you're putting out that i've spoken to some of your economists about um, that tracks and forecasts these various aspects of the supply chain uh, i'm curious to get your take we just had last week the executive director of the port of los angeles you probably know him uh, and he had, he sort of was more optimistic than you all. He thought that things could look better by maybe June or July, that it could look more normal in terms of the flows and the times, you know, not not so much delays that we're seeing of unloading ships. Now that's obviously only one facet of the supply chain. You know, your company and some of your folks I've talked to seem to think it could take more like a year before we're truly back to something that looks more normal in the supply chain space. Um, do you think there's any hope that by this summer it could be better, like a lot better?
1: Heather, I did. I, I listened to your interview, right, of um, of uh, John, and I would say that there's like just like you mentioned, there's many aspects of it, right? Let's start from you know uh, first is you know are we getting enough raw material? Second is are we bringing all those into semiconductor factories or electronics factories, and is there enough? capacity to build what we need, right? Third is, is there enough shipping and logistics capacity to transport what we need? Then there is, is there enough capacity to unload everything in the docks? Then there is, are there enough truck drivers to bring those across everywhere we need? So there are many aspects of how complex they are. And he's talking about one aspect of it, which is, you know, the loading, unloading of containers, the speed at which we can do that. And I'm sure you know, that will clear up sooner just because it's a question of capacity and they are building up capacity and they're building up longer hours and doing all that to clear up demand. It is the holiday season, so there is more demand from a consumer perspective. So parts of it will start clearing up sooner than later. That is bound to happen. But what is also happening is like I said, demand is very strong channel has to get filled up right and we need to put all supply back in the inventory think about go to a car dealership see how many cars you can find right so those channels have to fill up so that's why when we say that it'll take longer i think our view is that for it to correct and come back to normalcy all aspects of this you know will take a little bit longer but you know, ask 10 different experts. You're going to get 10 different answers. Yeah. I'll tell you that. That I, I tell people I'm stopping predicting. At what point does this get better? We just have to kind of, you know, work through it every single day. But every one of these supply chain crises goes through this bullwhip effect. And we're kind of in the middle of that.
0: Mm, I know it's always dangerous to make forecasts, especially right now. How many of us have been humbled time and again during this crisis? And you
1: know that being from an economist background, right?
0: I do. Yeah, we're even worse, almost as bad as the weather forecasters. But um, anyway, I I, want to shift a little bit on the supply chain to you keep bringing up these longer term issues. And Obviously, we're all focused, like you said, on when is my favorite product going to be back on the shelf or, when is the car lot going to have more options again? But I think you're right that beyond the immediacy of this crisis is what are these longer term investments that the United States and other nations need to be making to really help um, supply chains. And I wonder kind of there's so much we could talk about, but could you pull out your top two or three that you know, when you talk to government officials or company leaders, what are you urging people to really think about make this investment for the long term?
1: I'd say the first and the most important, Heather, will be, um, you know, kind of reducing the complexity in in the supply chain, which means that we will continue to bring things closer to the end consumer in terms of manufacturing capability. And for that, I would say government can always help because, you know, one of the biggest gaps we have is skilled workforce. And so the focus on what are the long-term areas where we can build manufacturing in different places in the world? How are you able to build the skilled workforce required to do that? And doing that in a planful way would be the top of the list in terms of the most important thing we can do, because we definitely are in a place in time where the shift of supply chains is going to happen. And we're going to see that in our time. I always joke that, you know, just like Tom Friedman wrote, The World is Flat, he's going to have another book coming back, right, about how um, the world's going to be different in terms of manufacturing moving forward. So we have to be planful about that and say, what are the areas that we need to build the right skills in? Because everything doesn't fit everywhere. But for example, if electric vehicles and autonomous is the world of the future, are there very specific skill sets and manufacturing hubs that we need to build up, right, across the country? And how do we invest in that, right? What is the government's role in investing in that? So for me, that is the single most important thing because the workforce has been retrained to become a services workforce, right? Mm-hmm. We have lost the manufacturing capability and the skill set. While we want to do that and we talk a lot about it, that's going to require a very thoughtful educational path and a reskilling path that I think that the government can play a huge role in. So I'd say that is very important. And then the second, of course, is things like semiconductor investment. You know, Recently, the $50 billion investment that the government has talked about is a start. Um, But significant investments like that have to be made to say, How do you make the R&D investment required? How do you make sure that you have the manufacturing capacity? So you you have to pick the two areas, which is invest in manufacturing hubs across uh, the country. And then the second is really focus on reskilling the workforce to be able to work in those locations.
0: Yeah, it's so like you said, it's so fascinating to hear you talk about you see these trends playing out of more. I guess we would call it regional manufacturing as opposed to manufacturing so much in Asia and shipping it around, around the world. It's, it's just mind boggling for me to hear you say it. it's such a different conversation than 20 years ago or even 10 years ago people were having. Um, can you say a little bit more about, so do you kind of foresee that the United States needs to bring more manufacturing back home, for instance, to build more semiconductor factories here in the United States or at least in North America?
1: Absolutely. I'm I'm a huge supporter of bringing manufacturing closer to the end consumer, right? Because like I said, the supply chain complexity has been building up for a long period of time. And one of the things we need to address is reducing that complexity. And how do you reduce that complexity? You manufacture closer to the end consumer. Now, that since that trend is already prevalent and is a significant conversation in every C-suite, I am a believer that, you know, with the amount of automation and the amount of new equipment available, you know, countries like the United States can be, you know, just more efficient in manufacturing capacity than we've ever had the capability to be. So the world has changed. We have new technology and automation We have new skills in being able to deal with automation for manufacturing that's very different than where we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So we have an opportunity to say, you know, you can have regional hubs of manufacturing, particularly in complex products, right? So I'm not talking about little high volume products like capacitors, resistors, or things like that, but in large complex products, like how do you build a hub of the autonomous vehicle of the future? Right. Those kinds of complex products, you can invest in autonomous, ma- in um, in automation and manufacturing, and build those regional hubs closer to the point of use. And so, I'm very bullish about the future of the United of United States in terms of manufacturing capability. Right, I'm hopeful that it stops being only a political conversation and there's real investment, not only from the you know, from the government, but also from, you know, all companies to really help build that manufacturing capability. Um, And I think that is going to be the wave of the future.
0: That's fascinating. And as you well know, for years, the argument was always it's so much cheaper to manufacture elsewhere, particularly in parts of Asia. Uh, Do you do you see that we used to call in economics, the wage differential or the wage gap. Is that closing? You, know, you talked about some of these higher skilled areas of manufacturing that could come back to the U.S. Are we at a place where we can pay a U.S. wage you know, to make a lot of these products?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, labor arbitrage is one portion of it, right? Heather, at some point, the conversation is way beyond that labor arbitrage. And yes, that is narrowing a lot, as you can you can see it. But I think about it as a total cost, right? We have to think about it, everything from how you get the raw material, how you transport it, how you convert it in the factory, how you ship it. So if you look at it from a total cost of ownership, You know, when you're paying so much money to put things in a container, when you're paying so much money to ship something across the world, then the total cost, you know, you have to look at it from an end to end perspective. So labor, labor inflation, labor arbitrage is one portion of it, and it is becoming a smaller portion of the overall complexity. Look at the amount of money we are paying in managing this type of supply chain risks and supply chain resiliency. So if you take the long view of this and don't look at it only from a labor perspective, I think you could reach different conclusions. And the good news is, I think every CEO, every CFO, every chief procurement officer today is taking the long view on this. And you're looking at it more end-to-end, not only from kind of labor, labor cost perspective, And I would say the other thing is that automation plays a huge role in this, right? There is so many new forms of automation and that plays a big role in how you manufacture. So I'd say, you know, I think about it as more of an end to end um, and how do you look at the whole value chain, not just one sliver of it. And then you reach, you know, probably different conclusions.
0: Yeah. Speaking of labor, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, we've been writing, obviously, a lot about challenges many companies have had hiring. What are you finding some of the most difficult positions to hire for at Flex right now?
1: I would say, yes, the war in talent is big, right? We hear everything from the great resignation to where are all these people going? Um, you know, so for us, um, you know, the biggest uh, requirement is, of course, around supply chain professionals, uh, planning, materials. Um, you know, those are kind of the big areas of investment for us. And um, today, you know, those they're in, in great requirements. So but almost every aspect, I would say, of talent, whether you think about finance or human resources or people that we need in the factory floor, I, There isn't one area where there isn't a need for talent today. Heather, I wish I could tell you that one's more than the other. But of course, standing on top of everyone's list is everyone wants the world's best supply chain professionals and, you know, everyone's looking for the same group of people, but it's across the board. And I'd say it's across every country we we operate in that there is a need for you know, great talent, and there seems to be a real focus on finding the best right now, and it's, uh, it's quite a challenge.
0: And I guess, are there any strategies that you all have used in the last year or two to try to stand out as, as a company? Um, we've certainly heard, obviously, many workers are trying to find remote jobs and that that helps as they search or looking for a certain amount of pay or looking for mental health benefits or certain child care help. Is there anything that you all have changed that that seems to really be attracting people's interest?
1: i'd say yes you know in in our life and in our world uh for people who are not in the factory and who are working kind of remote and are able to do that uh we've for a long time provided many benefits right because i've i've you know i'm a woman I've i've kind of worked through having children and trying to get to work and do all of that so We've definitely provided flexible benefits, remote working capabilities, you know, how we think about um you know how you're working, where you're working, the flexibility involved in it, those types of um you know benefits or opportunities we've been providing for a while. and some of them are accelerated, like the focus on kind of mental health and really helping people to think through you know, how do you work through this pandemic? How do you deal with these crises at home? Those things have definitely accelerated because everyone needs help around it. But we've always been a very inclusive company. We've always focused on kind of finding talent who really love working in our type of environment, who love manufacturing, Uh, but flexibility, remote work, you know, benefits like that has been always kind of the cornerstone of of Flex. So my view is that people who come to work for us kind of love manufacturing, right? That's why they want to be with us. But all the other things around it, we provide, and it's kind of part of our DNA.
0: I'm curious to get your take. You mentioned the great resignation or whatever people want to call it. One of the surprising aspects to me is that manufacturing quits have actually been rising and are basically at a record high as well. So uh, most of us might understand okay people leaving a restaurant job or a retail job but or even healthcare right now. But I think manufacturing was was is a certainly a surprise to me to see that so many people resigning. What do you think's going on in the manufacturing sector that that workers are are rethinking this role?
1: I think it's not just, um, Heather, my view is that it is probably across every sector, right? Because I think sometimes people are just using this opportunity to just rethink where you are in life, right? What do you want to do? Where do you want to spend your time? And I think that's a phase we're going to go through. Doesn't matter whether you're in a restaurant job or whether you're manufacturing or whether you're in tech. I mean, doesn't matter which aspect of kind of the world you're in and the function you're in and the kind of job you're in the pandemic, where it's a health crisis, where it's a human welfare crisis, where your friends and your family and your communities have been impacted has been a time of soul searching for so many people right and you know i'm not saying this as a as a ceo of a company i'm just saying this as a as a human being as someone who has seen you know families and friends go through this and for me it doesn't matter which sector you're in like everybody is in that phase so i don't think it's like whether it's one sector is difficult or not difficult i think just people are just rethinking where am i going to spend my time and i think we're going to see a A phase in time where that is going to happen, and hopefully it corrects, and we see kind of a wave of people coming back into the workforce. Mm. Uh,
0: You have an amazing backstory, Rivati, You know, born in India. uh, I believe um, your mom raised you and did not have a college education, but really encouraged you to go to college and um, to study engineering, mechanical engineering. Certainly not a field that often has a lot of women in it. And then you started on a factory floor yourself. I believe your your early jobs were um, managing for Eaton, a global power company in Oklahoma. I'm curious what drew you to manufacturing and, and what did you learn on those early days on the factory floor?
1: Uh, Heather, first, thank you for that question. Yes, I, was, uh, I lost my dad pretty young. I'm, I come from a girl of from a family of five girls you know a lot of credit to my mom to making all of us go through a college education and really pushing us to you know get to the best form of ourselves um you know i'd say i chose mechanical engineering because i thought you know it was very hands-on then i i was my the only girl in the class of uh, you know a class of uh, a whole bunch of boys at that point in time but I just like things that were hands on. And even then in 1990, when I graduated, the wave into IT was significant, right? So I had a, a lot of friends that I knew who moved into the IT space. I just liked things that were hands on. I liked watching things being made. And you know, I fell in love with it in my first job in a factory floor in Shawnee, Oklahoma and where we made you know kind of pumps and motors and just watching things being made the complexity of it the human element of the work that goes into it you know just kind of was my passion i just fell in love with that and um never moved out of um you know kind of being in the industrial space and being in manufacturing and that's just been my whole life and you know i'd say you have to be in manufacturing to really understand it and to love it. Right. It's like, you know, that that TV show, how are things made? And, you know, I don't know how many people watch it, but I love watching that show because it's just fascinating to watch how things are made. And, you know, I've been fortunate to work in many different end markets, many different areas of manufacturing across the world, like lived and worked in China and in, in Europe and in the U.S. and of course, India. Um, And I'd say that uh, in 30 years, we've seen so much change, right? We went from being very manual manufacturing to highly automated uh, manufacturing. We have seen real time changes in manufacturing. So I just have a passion and I love this space. And so it also does help that there are so few women that you do get noticed, right? So I, I hope this is a call out to more women to join this space.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Revathi and uh, we really appreciate your passion for manufacturing. I hope you get on an episode of How Things Are Made One Day.
1: I would love that. Thanks, Heather, so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.